Well, good morning, 11.30. We doing all right? Th- that response is just awesome. I love yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, beautiful day outside. Great to be here. God's been uh, working and moving this morning. We're going to pray that, that he keeps doing that right now and then later on at our 5 p.m. So glad you guys are here. Uh, we're actually wrapping up a series today that we've been in the last few weeks called Get Rich. And uh, if you haven't been here, then, then I would encourage you, visit crosspointcity.com. Go watch the messages from the past few weeks. Uh, you can go to our sermon page. You can watch any of our messages online for free at any point. But we've been covering a lot of important stuff in this series, and we don't want you to miss out, all right? But I want to go ahead and invite you to grab your Bibles, or if you have a device with a version app, you can turn your Bibles on. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, if you were here in week one of the series, you might remember me opening that message with a question. And here's was, here was the question. I, I asked how many of us in the room would consider ourselves rich. Now my assumption was, and I'm pretty sure my assumption was right, but my assumption was that most of us in this room would never lump ourselves into the rich category. Because when we think about what it means to be rich, don't our minds oftentimes go to a certain definition of rich? Like we tend to think of seven-figure paychecks, big houses, expensive cars, exotic vacations, designer clothes, and the like. But church, look, do you know why that's become our definition of rich? The, the answer is really simple. You ready for it? Here it is. Because we're Americans. That's why. So we live here in this country, that's why we think of, of rich as being all those things. You see, our definition as Americans is typically much more extravagant than the definition people in most places in the world might offer. We tend to have a very skewed idea of what rich really means. And to prove my point, I'm going to show you some statistics today. Um, I pray that these might just change some of our minds on how rich we truly are. But, but check these out. You can follow along on the screen with me. Look at this. First, if, if you make $50,000 a year or more, do you know that you are in the top 1% of income earners in the entire world? It's nuts, isn't it? Look at the next one. If you make more than $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of income earners in the entire world. If you make $11,000 or more a year, and just to put this in perspective, uh, $11,000 a year, that's poverty level in the United States. But if you make that or more each year, you fall into the top 13% of income earners in the entire world. Worldwide, the median annual household income is just shy of $10,000. And the median annual per capita income worldwide is just shy of, of $3,000. Now check this out. If you own a car or you have multiple sets of clothing, you're richer than 85% of the world's population. Nearly half the world's population, that's more than 3 billion people, live on less than $2 a day. 25% of the world's population uh, has no electricity. 30% has no access to sanitation. And finally, over a billion people in our world today still have no access to clean water. Now, why am I sharing that stuff with you? What's my motivation? Well, please know I'm, I'm not sharing that stuff with you uh, to beat you up, 
My intention isn't to make you feel guilty for what you have and for what other people don't have. I'm sharing these statistics with you because in our passage for today, we find Paul asking Timothy to give some very specific instructions to rich people on how to view and use money. And here's the deal. If you and I don't consider ourselves to be rich... We might shrug this passage off. We might think that this this message isn't really for us. It's for other people who who make more money than we make, who have more stuff than we have. But, But here's the truth, and the statistics prove this. This message is for all of us because by world standards, we are much richer than we think we are. So look, rich American people. We're going to dive into this passage together, and we're going to see what Paul has to say to us. And we're just going to take it one instruction at a time. All right, so if you have something to take notes with, if you're ready to go, I'm going to get you to start writing here in just a second. Get ready. But but we're going to start reading in verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Here's what Paul says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So here's Paul's first instruction. You ready? Here it is. Don't allow money to make you arrogant. That's the first instruction. In Proverbs 6.16, uh, the writer Solomon, he lists six things that God hates. And do you know what the first thing on the list is? Haughty eyes. In other words, Solomon, he tells us that God hates it when you and I become arrogant and we start to look down on other people. And Paul is telling us, don't allow money to turn us into those arrogant, conceited people who who look down on those who don't have what we have and who don't make what we make. Church, isn't it crazy that money can have that kind of power over us? I mean, I'm sure we've all seen examples of this playing out, right? It's, It's somebody you know personally, or maybe it's somebody you've seen on TV, but But I'm sure right now we could all think of someone whose arrogance has grown as their financial wealth has grown. They've started making more money, and as they've they've made more money, they've started acting like they're better than people around them. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, can I just tell you where that kind of financial arrogance begins? It begins when you and I lose sight of a truth that we have been trying to pound in your head and your heart this entire series. The truth that God owns everything and you don't own anything. That your money and stuff, it didn't come into you or come into this world with you when you were born and it's not leaving with you when you die. Everything belongs to God. He owns it all. You and I were simply managers of his money and his stuff. And, and here's the honest reality. The only reason you and I have more money and more stuff as Americans is because for some reason God, who is owner of all, has decided to entrust us with more. You get that, right? Listen, I know we can argue. We can argue hard work. We can argue innovation. We can argue free enterprise. And listen, I'm not downplaying those things. They're important. I get it. But look, at the end of the day... We have to be willing to confess and understand that we could have easily been born as one of those three billion people living on less than $2 a day, but we weren't. We were born here in this wealthy country, and do you know why? It's not because you had a little powwow with God before you were born saying, hey, bro, America, that's where I want it going down for me, right? No, instead, God in his infinite wisdom for some reason decided that this is where he wanted you to live, to be born, to experience life. And in allowing you to be born here, God was deciding to entrust you with more. And not only that, but don't ever forget that what you've needed to earn the wealth that you've accumulated, what you've needed to make the money you've made, 
God gave that to you as well. All your talents, all your giftings, all your abilities, your personality traits, those things come from God. You didn't come up with those things on your own. And you see, here's what happens when we forget those truths. We start to use money in a way that says to God, God, I'm the one ultimately responsible for the financial blessings in my life, not you. God, the reason I have more is because of who I am and what I've done, not because of who you are and what you've done for me. And that kind of arrogance towards God always translates into arrogance toward others. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Setting yourself above others begins when you set yourself against God. That's a true statement. This is the statement that, that, that we need to understand this morning in light of verse 17. This is what Paul is telling us to guard ourselves against. Don't let your financial blessings blind you to the blesser. Because when you're blinded to who's ultimately provided and blessed you, then not only do you set yourself against him, but in the process you set yourself above other people. You become that arrogant person that God looks at with with this hatred toward your behavior, what it is that, that you're doing and what it is that's going on inside your heart. And so church, here's the challenge and here's my encouragement. Every day, strive to keep a right perspective on why you have what you have. Remember who is ultimately responsible for blessing you with more. And here's the other thing you can't forget. And I hope you get this. Don't forget that as a person who's been blessed with more, God actually expects more of you. You know that? Luke 12, 48 says it best. To whom much is given, much is what? Much is required. Much is required. Man, see, I, I truly believe that when you understand those things, there's no room for arrogance. Your only choice is humility. What a humbling thought to know that God has trusted us with more and that he expects more of us. You see, when you take hold of those truths and you live in humility as a result of them, you start to learn to ask a different question. No, no, no longer do you ask, well, well since I have more, what, what more can I do for me? The question you start asking is this question. You start asking, God, what more can I do for you since you've blessed me with more? Keep a right perspective on the blesser. Learn to ask this question each and every day and don't allow money to make you arrogant. That's the first instruction. Now, instruction number two. Let's keep reading. This is found in the back half of verse 17. Paul goes on. So Timothy, tell those rich people, don't let money make them arrogant. And then secondly, tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So instruction two, if you're taking notes, here it is. Don't set your hope on riches, but on God who blesses richly. Don't set your hope on riches, but on God who blesses richly. Money can be very powerful and dangerous in that it can create for us this false sense of security and control. You understand what I'm saying? Like the more money you get, the more financially secure you feel. The, the more money you make, the more in control of life you feel. Which is why some of us in the room still believe if we had more money, we'd be happier and life would be a little bit easier, right? But again, Paul's telling us in the verse that we just read that, that those feelings, those ideas, those thoughts, they're just illusions. And here's how he says it. Money... As we've talked about in this series, it's not only temporary, but it's also uncertain. Meaning that our money and stuff can be taken from us at any moment and at any time. And some of you in the room, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know what it's like to lose jobs. 
to lose homes, to lose businesses, to lose investments. You personally know what it's like to go from in control, very financially secure, to insecure and out of control as a result of financial riches being stripped from you. Church, listen to me. Money cannot be trusted. You want to know why? Because money is uncertain. This is why Paul's telling us, don't set your hope on, on the uncertainty of riches, but on the God who blesses richly. Now, in order to understand how to do that practically, we need to understand the difference between worldly hope and biblical hope. There's a huge difference. You see, worldly hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. It's when you and I look out at the future with no confidence, with, with no knowledge of what's waiting on us out there, and we just kind of start to wish for things, right? And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Here's wishful thinking, worldly type of hope. Uh, I hope that I get that promotion at work so that my salary finally increases. I hope that I can get a new car because mine's old, it's busted, and I think it's getting ready to die. Uh, I hope that I get a Christmas bonus from my company this year so that I can actually afford all the Christmas gifts I want to buy for the family. Listen, do you hear the wishful thinking that characterizes that kind of hope? Look, if you're setting your hope in the things of this world, the uncertainty of riches, if you're living life each day with the hope I described, you understand that you're in danger of losing hope at any moment, right? I mean, think about this. What if, instead of getting the promotion at work, your company decides to downsize and you get laid off? What if your old busted car decides, yep, it's done, right? You ain't driving it anymore, and, and it dies before you can get the new one. What happens if your company this year, right, they pull a, a Clark Griswold on you, and, and the only Christmas bonus you get is a one-year subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. You with me, Christmas vacation people? Yes? Listen, what if that happens? At that point, isn't it true that, that all your hopes are shot? But look, biblical hope is completely different. Biblical hope is about looking out at the future with confidence. It's about knowing that good is coming your way because God has promised it to you. And I'll explain what I mean. I touched on a passage earlier in this series. Uh, I'll touch on it again today. Matthew 6, Jesus himself makes an amazing promise to us. He tells us, that if we'll seek God's kingdom, if we'll use our money and stuff to invest in God's kingdom while we're here on the earth, that you and I will never have to worry about our needs being met, ever. Now look, that doesn't mean that we're always going to have everything we want. It just means that we're always going to have everything we need. We'll always have food to eat, clothes to wear, and a place to lay our head. That's a promise from God to us about our future life here on the earth. That, that's a promise that should give us confidence. It's a promise that should leave us hopeful. See, that's the thing that's true about biblical hope. Biblical hope actually leaves us feeling hopeful at the end of the day. Again, listen to the difference. Worldly hope, I hope that my financial situation works out like I want it to so that I can provide for my wants and needs. Biblical hope is I'm confident that if I manage my money according to God's wishes and desires, that my needs will be met because that's what God has promised to me. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear how hopeful biblical hope leaves us? So again, church, here's the encouragement, here's the instruction. Don't set your hope on riches, but on the God who blesses richly. 
And when your hope is set in him, in the God who never changes, in the God who never fails, in the God who never breaks his promises, here's the beautiful result. Your hope can never be lost. Your hope can never be shaken. It can never be taken from you, no matter what happens with your bank account. The the third instruction is this. It's found in the first part of verse 18. Look at this. Rich people. Timothy, tell all those rich people that they need to do good and to be rich in good works. Instruction three, really simple. Here it is. Get rich in good works. That's what Paul's telling us. Uh, Just recently, I was talking to Susie, our executive director, about overseas mission work that we're involved in. And I love what she said. She said, "As, as people, we all have three choices when it comes to that kind of work. She said, we can go ourselves, we can financially invest in sending others, or we can simply do nothing. And then she went on to say, nothing should, should never be an option for us as followers of Christ. And I agree with her. But man, as I was thinking about her statement in light of this message, I started thinking that same logic can be applied here to this whole conversation about good works. Like when it comes to good works, you and I, we really have three choices. We can do good works ourselves, we can financially invest in the good works of others, or we can do nothing. And Paul's point to us in verse 18 as followers of Christ is nothing should never be an option for us. We shouldn't ever choose nothing. And in reality, we shouldn't be trying to choose between option one and two. We should be doing both. We should be doing good works ourselves and financially investing in the good works of others. Because in reality, church, getting rich in good works is what our lives are all about. Let me read you a verse from Ephesians 2. It's verse 10. And I'll unpack this and kind of explain what I mean. Look, this is Paul writing again, for we are his. Talking about God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what this verse tells us. That before you and I were born, God had good works that he wanted accomplished here on the earth. Good works that would ultimately reflect his generous, gracious, and loving character to the world. And so as God was thinking about how to accomplish those good works, guess what he did next? He created you. As David tells us in Psalm 139, the God of the universe knit you together in in your mother's womb. He has created you both fearfully and wonderfully. When he created you, he did so with, with certain abilities, certain gifting, certain talents, certain personality traits that would line up perfectly with the good works that he would give you to accomplish while you were here on the earth. And then he created you. You were born and you were put here. And if you know Jesus, God went on to save you by his grace through his son so that you could live out the life that he created you to live, accomplishing the good works that he prepared for you before your life ever began. And what an amazing thought. I don't know if that blows anybody else away, but it blows me away. To know that God isn't sitting up in heaven right now trying to figure out what to do with us. He's not sitting back going, why did I make that guy again? Kind of blew it on that one. That girl down there, did Satan make her? Don't remember that, right? That's not what God's thinking right now. He knows exactly why he made you. He created you with very specific plans, purposes, and good works in mind. And his desire is that you'd spend your life here on the earth living for those plans, those purposes, and those good works. So here's my question to you. What are you doing? Are you getting rich in good works? Are you doing nothing? And for those of us that are doing nothing, man, I pray that that changes sooner than later. But please hear my heart. Please hear my heart in this. 
please don't leave after today to, to start doing a bunch of good stuff just because you feel bad. Please don't do that. Like, don't leave and go, ah, James made me feel guilty. <sighs> guess I, get her, or I guess I better sign up for, for Hope for Christmas. Guess I better start serving on a team here. Guess I better start being nice to that mean lady at the grocery store, right? Like, don't, don't leave here with that as your motivation. See, getting rich in good works has nothing to do with guilt, duty, or obligation. Instead, it has everything to do with you living for the purpose that God created you and saved you to live for. See, getting rich in good works is about becoming more and more like Jesus. It's about sharing him with more and more people through deed and word. And so church, get rich in good works while understanding that's the entire purpose of your life. And look at me, put this to the test. Look, I'm telling you right now from experience, there is no greater joy to be found in life outside of living for that purpose. Get rich in good works. The, the next instruction is this, and the final one. It's found in the back half of verse 18. After he tells us to get rich in good works, he also says, Timothy, tell all those rich people to be generous and ready to share. Here's the instruction. You ready? God calls us in his word to generously share with others what he has generously shared with us. And this is what Paul is reminding us of. As rich people, we're called to generously share with others what God has generously shared with all of us. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was getting ready to go out of town. Uh, I was heading to Chicago for a few days. And as I was in my bedroom packing the night before I was going to leave, my, my three-year-old daughter comes in. And she has this pink ball with her. It's this pink ball she loves. And she plays with it all the time. And, and she hands me this pink ball. And she says, Daddy, I, I want you to have my pink ball. And so I said, well, baby, that's so sweet. I mean, I, I love that you're wanting to share with me. And so I said, Rowan, does this mean that daddy can pack this ball in his suitcase and take it on his trip? Well, in that moment, my daughter, she got this look of concern on her face. And then she stuck her hand back out, and her response was, no, daddy, that's my ball. <laughs> you see, in that moment, sharing sounded like a great idea to her. But when it came time to actually open her hand and let go of what was hers, the practice of sharing proved to be a lot harder than she expected. You see, I wonder how many of us sitting in this room today know what that's like, right? When we think about giving, when we think about being generous, when we think about sharing with others what God has shared with us, it sounds awesome. Like maybe that's why we're here at Crosspoint. We want to be a part of a church, a generous church that's striving to make a difference in this world for the glory of God and the good of people. Man, every time we talk about, about giving and generosity, we nod along, yes, yes, yes. But when it comes to actually opening our hands and letting go, that's when it gets hard. That's when it gets hard. Listen, if I'm describing you, here's what I want you to know. Write this statement down. We're going to unpack it. I want you to know that sharing starts in the heart and then moves to the hand. That's important for you to understand if you're the person I'm describing, that sharing starts in the heart and then moves to the hand. You need to understand that being generous, that giving financially, that sharing with others, this is an act of surrender. Surrender means that you completely submit yourself to someone else's authority. And in this case, we're talking about submitting ourselves to the authority of God. You see, the, the, the issue I think some of us face is this. We only view sharing as a hand issue. You know what I'm talking about? And we fail to recognize that sharing is actually a heart issue. And the reason some of us find it difficult to open our hands is because we haven't yet completely surrendered our heart to God, to his full authority, especially in this area of our lives. 
concerning money and giving. You know what I'm talking about? You see, here's the deal. At the end of the day, I want you to understand that sharing, generosity, giving, it can only happen when your heart moves. That's the only way it happens. And in order for your heart to move, you've got to begin to understand the depths of just how generous God has been toward you. That's where it starts. We have a simple giving philosophy here at Crosspoint that we talk about all the time. And we pray that this simple truth would continue to move all of our hearts toward greater generosity. We want to be a generous church in our community and world, not so that we can point people back to us, but so that we can point people back to our generous God. And so we say all the time this statement. If you've been here a while, you've heard us say it a hundred times, haven't you? And we want to be a church that gives because God gives. We know from the scriptures that God is a generous God, not just because he gives us money and stuff, but we know that the ultimate proof of God's generosity toward us is found in who, church? Come on, give me the churchy answer. Say it out loud. It's found in Jesus, right? We talk about it all the time here. That when you and I were spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses, that when you and I were deserving of God's wrath and judgment, when we were unable to change our spiritual condition on our own, what did God do? He gave. He gave. He gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserved, to raise from death at the end of three days, to conquer sin, death, and hell on our behalf so that we could be restored back into a right relationship with God. Church, when we were at our worst, God gave his best. When we had nothing to offer him, he offered us everything. And church, my question for you is simple. Do you believe that? And listen, I'm not asking, look, look, I'm not asking if you believe it up here. I'm not asking if you know it intellectually. My question is, has that truth about God's generosity and grace toward you as a sinful, ill-deserving person, has that truth moved your heart? Has it moved your heart? Do you really believe that because of what God's done for you that you have nothing to earn and nothing to prove? That it doesn't matter who you've been, what you've done, what you're doing now, what you might do in the future, that Jesus Christ has won the acceptance and love of God for you, both now and in eternity. You believe that, and church, has it moved your heart? Here's how you know if it has. When that truth moves your heart, your hands begin to open. Your heart moves, your hand opens, and you start to generously share with others what God has generously shared with you. And here's why. Because you start to realize a couple things. That by being generous, you're more like him. Right? I've said this a couple times throughout the series. The number one most used word in the Bible is God. The second most used word in the Bible is, is gives. God is a giver, not a taker. And when we give generously of what God has given us, we get to be like him. And not only that, when we give together generously as a church family, we get to do more. We get to accomplish more ministry. Our reach widens and more people in our community and world get to hear the good news about our generous and gracious God and what he's done for them in Jesus Christ, his son. And I'm just telling you, man, if you've never given generously before, financially before, there is so much joy to be found in knowing that by giving money, you can impact lives for eternity. You see, this is why I want every person who calls Cross Point City Church their home to give to the mission and vision of this church. It's why I want us to show up each week, not just to consume, but also to contribute to what God is doing in and through this church family. 
Hey, listen, I know there's always going to be skeptics out there, right? Every time we talk about money in church, somebody's going to be skeptical. Well, James, you sound like another one's pastor's brother that just wants my money. Cross Point sounds like another one's church that just wants my money. Listen, can I just for a moment put your skepticism to rest if that's you? First thing I want to say, if you've been at Cross Point, like this is your church and you've never given here, why don't you start by taking our 90-day giving challenge? This is brand new for our church. We'll talk about it a whole lot more after the first of the year. But here's the challenge. Give to Cross Point for 90 days. And if at the end of those 90 days you haven't experienced all that we've been teaching in this series, your faith in God hasn't deepened, your love for the church hasn't deepened, you don't have greater joy and contentment, you don't have the joy of knowing that you're contributing to, to life change that's happening in and through this church, here's the deal. We'll give you all your money back. It doesn't matter if it's $5 or $5,000. If you don't experience what we're teaching you from the scriptures, you're going to experience as a result of financial generosity. We'll stroke you a check, send you on your merry way, no questions asked. And do you know why we're willing to do that? Because we want you to take us seriously when we say that financial giving is not about us wanting something from you. It's about us wanting something for you. And if all it takes for you to believe us is a money-back guarantee, we'll give you the guarantee all day long. So go to crosspointcity.com today if that's you. Take the giving challenge and see if whether or not these truths are, are real in your life. And then the second thing, and this one's so much harder for me personally, okay? Um, but I just felt like God's been impressing this upon me, so I'm going to say it. If you've been around Crosspoint for a long time, and for some reason you still feel like you can't give to this church. Like there's a barrier. I, I just can't. Hey, here's what I want to say to you, all right? And I, and I pray that this might free some of us up. I want to give you permission and freedom to leave Cross Point and to go to a different church where you can give. Please hear my heart in this, okay? Because this is hard for me to say. I'm not trying to push anybody out the door. You don't know how difficult it is for me personally people leave our church. I don't ever want anybody to leave our church. But I love you and care about you enough to say that if you can't give here, I'd rather you leave here and go somewhere where you can give so that God can truly have your heart and you can experience the joy of investing in his church and in his kingdom. Now, last thing. Why does all this matter? Why do you and I need to put into practice these instructions that Paul's given us like today? Why does it matter so much? Well, let me show you why it matters. Paul goes on to tell us in verse 19. Look at this. He says that when you and I practice all that we've learned in, in this passage and, and throughout the rest of the series, when we manage money God's way, that, that the result is we store up treasure as a good foundation for our future and we take hold of that which is truly life. So here's what Paul's telling us. You and I, when this life is over, as followers of Christ, we're going to step into God's eternal kingdom. Paul's reminding us on that day when that happens that, that the way we manage what God gave us here is ultimately going to determine the blessing and reward we receive there, right? He's telling us that when we manage God's money his way, that the result is greater reward in God's kingdom. You understand that, right? That there's coming a day, and this is hard for some of us to hear, there's coming a day we're going to stand before God, he's going to reward us for what we did here on the earth, and he's going to reward those of us who managed his money and stuff his way greater than he's going to reward those of us who didn't. That's hard to hear, isn't it, for some of us? Again, what happens in eternity in the way of reward and blessing is ultimately determined how we, by how we manage God's rewards and blessing here on the earth. So listen, knowing that's true, 
And you get a picture of that from Luke 16, by the way, if you want to read that on your own time this week. But, but knowing this is true, why in the world would we ever hoard our money and use it in selfish ways? Why would we ever hold on to it tightly while knowing that at the end of our lives we're leaving it all behind and miss out on God's eternal blessing that can never be lost? I'm just telling you out of love for you. I'll say this out of love for you. If you're living your life that way, man, you are insane. You are crazy. I hope it changes. I hope God changes something in you. I love what the great missionary Jim Elliott says about this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Church, look at me. Open your hands. Let God move your heart. Invest in things that matter. And you can know that in eternity... The reward is greater. The reward is greater. Listen, second thing Paul says is when we manage money God's way, we take hold of that which is truly life. Do you you want to know and experience life in the way that God intended you to know and experience life? You want to feel more alive than you've ever felt? You want to feel like your life matters, like you're making a difference, like, like you're actually here for something? Paul tells us the key, practice what he's told us to practice in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Man, yesterday I was playing hide-and-go-seek in, uh, in my house with my daughter. She loves it. But she has an issue with hide-and-go-seek. Every time we play, she tells me where she's going to hide, right? Daddy, you count. I'm in the bathroom, all right? That's, that's kind of how we play. And so I tell my three-year-old daughter, Rowan, that's not how the game works, girl. You, you have to make it more difficult on Daddy to find you. You know what I love about God? He hasn't made, us, made it difficult for any of us to find him. And he hasn't made it difficult on us to find the life that he has for us. He sent Jesus so that we can know exactly who he was. And he's called us to a particular way of life here on the earth so that we can know and experience life in the way he's designed it. And and Paul's revealing the key. You know what the key is? Be generous. Share. Be like Jesus. Get rich in the right things. Keep an eternal perspective. Invest in an eternal kingdom that will never fall, that will never fail, that will never be shaken. Get rich in the right things and you will take hold of that which is truly life. Church, take hold of it. Don't miss out on what God has for you because you're greedy and you're trying to hold on to something so tightly that one day you're going to lose anyway. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You want to know life? Be the person that God's called you to be. Get rich in the right things. Keep your eyes on Jesus and strive every day to be like him. You'll know life in a way that you've never experienced it before.